Hello again and welcome to Professors at Work. This is Rami Khouri at the American University of Beirut. We talk every week with a professor or a research scholar about the research they're doing and the, what they're discovering and, and why it matters to us. And this week we have a particularly exciting episode with uh, Rosemary Bustani. Uh, Rosemary is a tenured professor of pediatrics and adolescent medicine and also biochemistry and molecular genetics in the uh, medical center at AUB. Uh, her specialty is something called pediatric neurology, and that also includes something called neurogenetics. Um, we will discover what all that means, and it means a lot because she's made some pretty amazing discoveries. Uh, new, she's discovered some new genes and new cures for uh, some uh, childhood diseases, I think. And she will explain all that to us. So, Rosemary, thank you for being with us. Thank you for inviting me, Rami. Nice to hear your voice. Thank you. Well, you're doing some pretty amazing work, you and your colleagues there at AUB Medical Center. So tell us, what is uh, what is the focus, the main focus of your research in these fields of pediatric okay. neurology? I'm going, I'm going to start at the beginning. From the time I was a, a pediatric resident at AUB and I had I was at a loss as to what to pick to study and there were no pediatric neurologists at the time and it so happens when my time came to give my uh, grand rounds presentation as a resident the case I chose was a case uh, with adrenoleukodystrophy, which at the time uh, was the gene for it was not known, the pathophysiology was not known, but I kind of got interested in neurogenetics and neurology. And since there wasn't anyone who could fulfill that service, at the time it was the adult neurologist, I put it in my head that I was going to become a pediatric neurologist. Oh. Uh, to cut a long story short, I went to Boston where I did my uh, adult and pediatric neurology training and wanted to, to come back and immediately become uh, a clinician. But the civil war transpired in Lebanon and my parents begged me to stay on and I was a bit at a loss as what to do and then I had a very complex case in the emergency room uh, a, a very smart boy who could not uh, would not let anybody touch him mm -hmm. and who was um, normal in every way but I could not examine him and I spent every time I would even come close to touch him he would jump with pain Wow. And I was uh, very uh, flabbergasted by this case. So the next morning, uh, I ran into uh, the late uh, Professor Raymond Adams, basically the gra grandfather of adult and pediatric neurology. Mm -hmm. And he was running down the hallway going to his golf game. And I said, please, Dr. Adams, I need your help. I saw this case and I barely would touch him and he would scream with pain and he's very smart. And I did. He stopped me. He said, oh, this is Fabry's disease. It's a neurogenetic disorder and it causes uh, pain. And, and I felt that there was no way I could go back to Lebanon and not know about a whole group of diseases. So the next day I contacted uh, the head of uh, lysosomal storage diseases, Edwin Kolodny, and I told him, I want to work with you for a year or two to learn all about these diseases. And that's how I kind of fell uh, into neurogenetics. And uh, I did a, a, a subsequent fellowship with him in neurogenetics and neurochemistry and helped him run a diagnostic laboratory and became very interested in a particular group of diseases, uh, for short called Batten's disease. The longer name is 
neuronal ceroid lipofuscinosis. And I think my brain was, uh, was structured to, to answer mm. questions and be a scientist. So I tried to convince the scientists who worked in the research institute where I was to work on specific questions that I thought were very relevant to this common group of deadly progressive neurodegenerative disorders. Basically, if you can imagine a fast forward Alzheimer in children, and it wow. had various types. And at the time, we knew very little in it. And I could not, you know, each scientist has his own little focus. And she or he didn't wasn't particularly impassioned by the problems that to me were very important because I was seeing patients with those disorders and right. I felt like I had to do something. So right. I took the decision to have, after my long clinical training, uh, to actually uh, try to combine continued clinical training in this field, but to also uh, attack the basic science or wet lab research. Right. And that's how my odyssey began to become a, 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 not only a clinician, but a research scientist working on the problems that were relevant to my patients. And that has been a driving force that continues to this day. And I continue to do both, uh, basically active uh, clinical medicine and a very active research program. And I wrote my first NIH grant. I was quite young and uh, some of the PhD scientists in my institution said, but you, you're, you're not really a basic scientist. How can you write an R1? Well, I did. And <laughs> I don't know, beginner's luck or whatever, but I obtained the grant and that kind of set me uh, on my course. Uh, and that was 1986 or 1987. And okay. then um, I, I worked on this specific problem and the grant project was on this specific problem. And I started out where all medicine has to start, even when it's followed by basic science. And that is to address the clinical um, appearance of this disease and the classification. At mm -hmm. the time, everybody thought it was one big lump of disorders. And I had spent so much time examining different patients that it occurred to me that they were really very different diseases. And right. that it, if once we found the gene, it wasn't going to be one gene, but many genes. And of course, a lot of the luminaries in the field laughed at me. And I was nothing but a fellow at the time. Mm -hmm. But it turned out I was right. Mm -hmm. And the very first gene uh, discovered in this disorder was one which was responsible for the juvenile variant. And now we recognize 14 different genetic disorders, each very specific, but they had similarities, which is why initially people grouped them uh, together. And mm -hmm. uh, I have continued to work on this group of disorders. Uh, there's various variants. I focused on two in particular, which is the juvenile variant, which affects children um, from the ages of six. They start off with just having a problem with vision and blindness. And by the time they're eight or nine, uh, they may start having um, problems at school and then they develop seizures and then they rapidly decline both uh, with movement and cognition and uncontrollable seizures and blindness. Wow. And by the time they're in their late teens, early 20s, they succumb 
to infection or prolonged seizures. And that's the CLN3 variant. And this is most common in those of Northern European ancestry. Uh, And we found the gene for that. A couple of years later, working together with my colleagues at Harvard, even after I moved to Duke, um, I was... um, eager to attack the second most common variant, which is the late infantile variant. And I met this lady from Costa Rica, and she said that there were like 16 families. This is like genetic gold. So I used part of my grant, and I went to Costa Rica, and I examined all these kids, collected blood samples and skin biopsies and histories. And I came back, and I told the head of uh, the program that, well, this is not the late infantile variant. This is a completely different variant. And of course, everybody opposed me because uh, they all wanted to attack finding the late infantile gene. And the Costa Rican variant, which is it's known by that name now, was different. And I was correct. And the second hmm. gene to be found was, uh, well, they found one in Finland, which is CLN5, of which we've seen very few cases. And the the variant late infantile or the Costa Rican variant is uh, the CLN6 gene is responsible for it and uh, together with uh, my collaborators at Mass General and uh, we found that gene and I have worked very much on both the juvenile variant and what we call the variant late infantile or Costa Rican variant and I wasn't satisfied with just having found the gene though at the time A couple of years before, I would tell my friends, I'll stop doing research once I find one or two genes. But that was uh, was a lie. Uh, I I wanted to know what the gene does, because at the core of everything, if you don't find out where the problem is, where the Mm -hmm. defect is, you can't even conceive of treatment. So I started working on that. And in fact, even before we identified the first gene, I was at a conference and someone was uh, talking about cell death, programmed cell death, otherwise known as apoptosis, which is a natural phenomenon Mm -hmm. that occurs during development to prune the embryo and to make a perfect baby uh, Mm -hmm. after. And it's a programmed uh, machinery in the body that gets rid of unwanted cells, either be they due to uh, damage like uh, trauma or because they are defective in some way. And I went to attend a half-day seminar on blindness caused by something called retinitis pigmentosa. Mm -hmm. And the retinitis pigmentosa is found in all these NCLs or Batten's disease. And as I was listening to this guy, I said to myself, these patients, their brain shrinks And they have retinitis. So this is the process that's occurring. And I remember a very famous neuroscientist who shall remain unnamed was sitting next to me. And I kind of nudged him and I said, Dr. So-and-so, I think this is what's happening in the NCLs. And he looked at me and he said, you'll never be able to prove that. Well, that's what Mm -hmm. I set out to do. And we managed to prove it both in material obtained from, unfortunately, children who had succumbed to this disease, who had donated uh, uh, organs, including the brain. And we actually proved it 
and we showed it in the brain and the eye of these patients. And someone from New Zealand by the name of Bob Jolly, who was a veterinary pathologist, had an animal model and he sent me tissues all the way from New Zealand wow. and we tested them and they showed the same thing. And it took me three years to get that paper published. Nobody wanted to touch it with a textbook <laughs> pole. Yeah. And then an editor of a journal from Canada called me. He was the editor of the Journal of Neurochemistry. He said, I've heard from some of the parents that traveled to see you that you have a concept and that you have done some work. I said, yes. He says, why haven't you published? And I said to him, because nobody's accepted my paper. He said, well, I still have two months as the editor of the Journal of Neurochemistry. Please send it to me. And mm. it was published. But it was published wow. a year after we found the gene. But finding and having the gene made it possible for me to prove it at the molecular and cellular level uh, that this process called apoptosis. So what's happening in these children is that this normal physiologic process, something has it get out of control and cells would be rapidly uh, killed in mm -hmm. the brain and in the eye, causing all these awful symptoms in these children right. leading to their ultimate demise. And once I got into the field of apoptosis, I wanted to know exactly where the defect lies. And, mm -hmm. you know, one thing led to another. Uh, we, we had the gene. We tried to find out one of the PhD students in my lab at Duke Dixie, uh, Persotzau, and she, I told her, I want you to take this gene and chop it up to find out which part of the gene is the most important part of this wow. gene and which is the part that's responsible for uh, uh, preventing apoptosis, like, and you compared a healthy gene with a gene which had a part missing, and mm -hmm. piece by piece, we figured it out to two small stretches. And ultimately, uh, we could say, and that work has, of course, been published many, many years ago, mm -hmm. and then subsequent focusing on this process and learning about it, um, we needed to find out, because I was still adamant, wanting to find a way to stop this uh, abnormal process right. in these children. And uh, we have identified a number of very basic uh, problems, uh, one, one of which on, on which we have a, a couple of patents now mm -hmm. is first we identified a drug uh, that's a very well-known painkiller that was in use in Europe at the time uh, called flupertine. And I had come across some weird paper in helping one of my graduate students where she needed a positive control, uh, uh, something to prevent apoptosis. And I was just doing blind literature searches and I came across this chemical and I thought it was a chemical, didn't know it was a drug, found out, found the name of the company in Germany, called them, begged them, and they sent me a kilo of this powder. And we tested it in cells and found that, lo and behold, it prevents defective uh, cells derived from these patients from dying. And that was wow. uh, the basis of our first patent, which issued, uh, which was uh, very interesting. Well, but Rosemary, Rosemary, let me interrupt you just for a second here. Because uh, mm. we're, we're, we've only got about six, seven minutes left. Um, okay. So you, this is an extra extraordinary story of uh, the discovery and research and persistence. Um, and then you make the breakthrough. You find the the molecular and the cellular conditions that lead to these uh, diseases. And now you're saying that you're able to find uh, a cure or a preventive. 
Yes, well, and uh, uh, needless to say, just before I moved back to Lebanon, uh, I tried to write a grant about the use of this drug, and it was, uh, I had my, what they call at the FDA, I had like my preclinical meeting with them, and they thought it was a great idea, and it was uh, an available, uh, so, uh, and the, my first patent was a use patent, so it was a new use for a known, a known drug, mm -hmm. and uh, it didn't get funded, but hundreds of families all over the world uh, would get in touch with me. And I developed a program because I had written the grant, you know, how right. much they could take. And it, it helped them. It did not cure them, but it prolonged uh, the useful period of, of their life. So I knew that that wasn't the final answer. And we delved deeper and we found that there was another basic problem. And that was what the function of the CLN3 gene was in the juvenile variant was that it was responsible for carrying a fat from the inside of the cell to the cell surface, but uh, that the travel of that fat when it came from outside the cell was intact. Mm -hmm. And this fat is called galactosylceramide. Needless mm -hmm. to say, uh, I, galactosylceramide was available through a Japanese beer company because <laughs> they use it in making beer. Wow. And we, we wrote them and they sent us some and we tried it and lo and behold, it was just like putting back the healthy gene in the cell. And that was uh, another uh, patent that uh, was developed. And I was, I'm very proud of that patent because some of the work for that patent was done at AUB. So this was a combined Duke AUB patent and it wow. issued and uh, we have, a, it's actually it's licensed to a company. And now, of course, I don't hear anything, but a company uh, bought the rights uh, to this uh, to this patent. Mm -hmm. Wow. So um, you, you're saying that in some of these uh, variants, you can actually not only just stop the deterioration, but uh, end it completely. Well, that's not entirely true because uh, we know from studies done uh, even on um, uh, unfortunately fetuses that mm -hmm. have this disease, the disease process begins very early in development. But yes. like all other genetic diseases, the earlier you begin to treat, um, the, the, the better the outcome. For, right. for these kids. Now, it, they may not be 100%, but uh, for example, uh, the late infantile variant and the is diagnosed by age four or five. So if you start the treatment at age four or five instead of later, you will, you will have, a, they will do much better. Yes. The other important thing is unfortunately these families, who, because it's a genetic disease, uh, by the time we've diagnosed the first kid, They've had two or three other kids, right. which could be at risk. So for uh, siblings and future pregnancies, it's very important because uh, let's say they, they don't believe in uh, therapeutic abortions, mm -hmm. but you can institute at birth a new treatment once it becomes available and uh, FDA approved and mm -hmm. safe and all of that. So right. there is the hope of being able to prolong the life of these uh, kids wow. and, and uh, go ahead and, and what are we talking about in terms of numbers do we know all over <laughs> the world how many uh, yes. young kids have this yeah 
So, it, of course, these are rare diseases. I mean, it's not like talking about diabetes or heart right. disease or cancer. But, you know, when a rare disease hits a family, it's no mm -hmm. longer rare and it's devastating. And each one of these cases costs, for example, I can tell you what the cost for caring such a child is per year. It can amount to like $150,000 per wow. year during wow. their lifetime. Wow. Uh, so even though it's rare, the co and uh, not to mention the the pain, the economic burden, uh, the families that get divorced because the, the parents can't deal yeah. with the stresses of caring for a full needs child. Mm -hmm. So the cost is high to society and uh, individuals. And um, but you're talking about thousands of cases, tens of thousands or hundreds. Uh, yes, or? Uh, yeah. I mean, the the incidence is uh, is low. It's like right. uh, 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 two to three per hundred thousand worldwide. And there yeah, are okay. pockets where it's very oh. common. Like the CNN three variant is very common in those of Northern European ancestry. Interestingly, the CLN six variant and the CLN two variant are more pan-ethnic and we have them in Lebanon and I've had a number of cases I've diagnosed here, Pakistan, India, China, Italy, okay. so more prevalent. We, we've almost run out of time. Tell me what you're looking at next. What's your yes. uh, next step and are you doing it uh, purely with your colleagues at AUB or are you still collaborating with Duke and others? No, I'm not collaborating with Duke. I have, uh, interestingly, uh, I was contacted a few years ago by a chemist uh, who was at the time in Texas called Paul Trippier. And he wrote to me saying, I'm a chemist and I read your paper on this initial drug that I had developed, uh, Flupertine, and I've made a number of compounds. Would you test to see if they're any good? I've made them so that they're absorbed better and they're safer. And lo and behold, this has opened up a whole new can of worms and we he and I have been working together for six years and believe it or not even this year uh, we wrote an NIH grant together which got funded for 1.2 mm -hmm. million dollars wow. to AUB and all the animal work and testing of the drugs is done here at AUB but he makes the chemicals for us so this this interest continues so you're um, you're you're creating you and your colleagues are creating new drugs testing them, and then if they seem to work, you try to get yes. them approved. and we have quite a few publications together on that. Uh, if, if, I, if you're out of time, let me know. If not, I need to tell you about one more thing. Well, we can go for another two minutes or so, so go ahead. Okay. So I'm still working on this group of diseases that are very close to my heart, uh, but my other area of interest has become autism and mm -hmm. autism in Lebanon. When I came here, even though I, I didn't like taking care of them when I was in training, uh, but there was so much of it and there was nothing to offer these kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know, and uh, from because I'm a geneticist, that the Lebanese are, even though they think that they're not related, they're all, uh, there's a high degree of shared ancestry. Mm -hmm. And I thought that Lebanese autism patients would be an ideal source to look for genes because, uh, you know, all disease is, uh, some of it is global, but some of it is regional mm -hmm. where you have the opportunity to find um, different genes. So we started doing that with no funding initially and then some funding from AUB uh, uh, funds. And we have so far identified three novel autism genes and that's the other big area of interest for me. And wow. we're pursuing the same thing 
that we did. It's just a little harder than with the other uh, disorders because it's much more complex. And yeah. the incidence of autism in Lebanon was quite high. We were the first together with Monique Shaya from the, uh, uh, well, the public health. Uh, health uh, science. Yes, health, health sciences. Mm -hmm. We did a door-to-door -door survey and we found that the prevalence of autism in Lebanon was extremely high. Mm -hmm. One of every 68 toddlers going to nurseries has the disorder. Wow. And uh, so it's very relevant. And it's it's uh, also breaks my heart to say that there's a lot of uh, therapies uh, you know, physical, yes. behavioral that are effective in this disorder, but none of them are covered by any insurance or wow. uh, the national security of the government. And right. uh, that's like my uh, wow. uh, a pet peeve of mine to, to get them to think of this disease like diabetes. And I usually at the end of my slide, I say, uh, would you prevent diabetics from getting insulin? Like speech therapy, uh, behavioral therapy, mm -hmm. uh, the parents have to pay out of pocket and it's very expensive and wow. now unaffordable completely. Oh, of course. Well, we've run out of time, unfortunately. This is quite extraordinary uh, work that you're doing, Rosemary. I really thank you for joining us. Uh, to our listeners, uh, let me tell you, we've been speaking to Rosemary Bustani, who's a tenured professor of pediatrics and adolescent medicine uh, on biochemistry and molecular genetics at the AUB Medical Center and has done uh, with her colleagues at Duke University in the U.S. and here at AUB. Uh, pretty uh, um, amazing, groundbreaking uh, work on um, a series of uh, genetic-based uh, diseases among uh, infants and, uh, and juveniles, and now she's shifted over into uh, autism research as well. Uh, Rosemary, thank you for being with us. Thank you for inviting me, Rami. It was a pleasure to talk to you. You bet. Keep up your great work. Thank you. Uh, and uh, thanks to our audience for joining us. I'm Rami Khoury, your host. Join us again next week for another episode of Professors at Work. Bye for now.